Tonight we're going to be thinking about the confident, fruitful life. Hebrews chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you might want to read along with me. In verse 7 it says, For the earth, which drinks in the rain, that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those who, by whom it is cultivated, receive blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have manifested or ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who, through faith, and patience inherit the promises. In Hebrews chapter 6, the author has challenged the Hebrew Christians or the readers to go forward, to grow up, to mature. And the Christian life is one of constant maturation. Some of the Hebrew Christians, remember, remember were tempted to leave Christ and to leave Christianity and to return to Judaism. But real life is in Christ. Forgiveness is in Christ. Hope is in Christ. For the, the future is in Christ. And so the writer has made strong arguments about the superiority of Jesus in every way to Judaism. And it makes perfect sense. That the religious seeker would perhaps ask the question, which religion is true? And in the ancient world with a host of gods and goddesses, and you asked and answered the question concerning who they are and what they demand, and there would be constant conversation about who to worship and what to worship. And the Jewish people knew that the false gods of the Greek and the Roman world weren't really gods. They understood that there really was only one God and they understood the revelation of God by Moses was far superior to the pagan pretending religions. The apostle John said that the law came by Moses, but that grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the ancient world, as well as the modern world, some people see religion like a philosophical smorgasbord like an all-you-can-eat buffet that you can go down the lines and you can take what's tasty and leave what's less than tasty that you pick and choose what's best for you not so says the writer of Hebrews the writer of Hebrews says God has spoken to us in the person of Jesus God has come And spoken to us. 
And if you even narrow the choice down between Judaism and Christianity, the writer urges us that this isn't just about a choice between two religions, but what it is, it's about having a right relationship with God in the only way that you could possibly have a right relationship. And that's through through Jesus. To embrace Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. Because there were people who were wondering whether or not the sacrifice of Judaism was still in effect. Or the priesthood of Judaism was still in effect. So the author is going to illustrate his point by referring to a piece of land. When the land is fruitful, it's blessed, in verse 7. When the land is barren or fruitless, it's cursed, in verse 8. That's fairly simple. But now the author will point out his confidence that the warnings that he has given in verses 4 through 6 need not apply to his readers in verses 9 through 12. What are the elements of a fruitful life? What do you have to have in your life to characterize your life as being fruitful? The author will say, love in verse 10. Hope in verse 11. Faith. In verse 12. Look again in verse 7. For the earth. Which drinks in the rain. That often comes upon it. And bears herbs. Useful for those by whom it is cultivated. Receives blessings from God. He's using a metaphor. He's using an illustration. Much like Jesus does in the New Testament. When he talks about the different kinds of soils. Being in the heart. Of of a seed being planted and growing. So to illustrate the fruitful life. He's going to use this example. In this case the earth. Are all of the people in the earth. Which get a constant flow of water. In the Bible water is often seen as either the Holy Spirit. Or the word of God. But. Typically and primarily he's talking about the fruitful life. So just like the earth drinks in the rain, absorbs that rain, the seed grows, it bears fruit. It's useful for those by whom it is cultivated. The farmer, the vine keeper, they cultivate the soil. They plant their gardens and fields. Everyone benefits from the crop that is produced. And so the true believer drinks in the rain, bears fruit, receives blessing. The Lord cultivates love and the Lord cultivates hope and the Lord cultivates faith so that we can manifest love, hope, faith. Theologians speak of God's sovereign grace, how the sun comes up. And it shines on the just and on the unjust. Theologians talk about how the earth produces fruit for the just and the unjust. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, people have to eat. And so 
part of what the point that he's talking about is both the believer and the unbeliever are benefactors of God's sovereign grace. And so for the Hebrew Christian, what are they to think about the religious tradition in which they grew up in? How am I to think about Judaism and the life that I spent in Judaism? And see, this might be foreign to you because you're not Jewish and you didn't grow up in a Jewish world. But maybe you grew up in a different kind of a world. Maybe you grew up in a world where there was religion or no religion at all in your home. Maybe you grew up in a world of a very specific religion. And so your exposure to God and your exposure to Jesus and your exposure to the things of God come from that religious lens. And Paul, in other places particularly in the book of Romans, argues that the whole world received blessings and benefits because of Judaism. God's revelation came through Moses. The law was given by Moses. The Jewish people gave us the Bible. The whole world is blessed by Abraham's faith and Moses' obedience. We are the benefactors of all of the promises that were given and the prophecies that were recorded, how God spoke to a world that needed a savior and that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of those promises and prophecies. Paul will argue persuasively in the book of Romans that we're all blessed because God adopted Israel, revealed his glory, gave the covenants, gave the law, the service of God and the promises, it says in Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Of whom, it says in verse 5, are the fathers. That means Isaac, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God, Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 5. So Jesus is God. Christ has come. The promises are fulfilled. But then he talks about the blessings of being a fruitful person and the curse of being a fruitless person. In verse 8 it says, but if it bears thorns and briars, he's talking about the earth or the land. It is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. The author's point, there's not a whole lot that you can do with barren land. Imagine the rain comes and it hits the dirt, but the only thing that grows is thorns and thistles. You see, the land isn't completely barren. It will grow something. It will grow thorns and thistles and by the way what's the first mention of thorns in the bible it's in the book of genesis remember it's after the curse comes and remember eve receives a curse in childbearing adam receives a curse now the ground that he once which once produced fruit in abundance would now produce thorns it becomes a type and a picture of the consequences of sin. By the way, 
When Jesus is being crucified, what will they press on top of his head? A crown of thorns. So the fruitless land is a parable of the fruitless life. Just like the life that's lived apart from Christ. Is it possible to live a life apart from Christ and something's growing in your life, but it's not fruit? It's thorns and thistles. You're producing the only thing that you're capable of producing. And that's a life apart from Christ. That's a a life filled with sin. That's a life that's absent Christ. So the barren life that produces these thorns and briars is rejected. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected, the Bible says, near to being cursed. In other words, the idea is that there is a blessed life, there is a cursed life. What happens when the person rejects God, rejects Christ, rejects the revelation of God in Christ, the apostate is impervious to reason, reluctant to have their conscience even tapped. And so the apostate, remember, he's talking about what has already happened in verses 4, 5, and 6. The apostate hears the word, reaches the heart, Touches the conscience and the affection. The apostate is enlightened. The apostate tastes of the heavenly gift. Examines the heavenly gift. Senses the sweetness and the goodness of the Bible and the word of God. Experiences some measure of blessing. But it has no effect. It never penetrates the heart. It never changes the life on the inside. It never produces the fruit of real love for God and love for your brothers and sisters, real hope and all of the promises that are given in Christ, real faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Having part of what you need to understand is They put Christ in their mouth and then they spit him out. Hey, you know what? I think I'm going to go out and check out God and check out Jesus and and check out the church and check out the Bible. And so you go to church. You open up your Bible. You you show up at a Bible study and you wonder, what is this all about? What is... What is all of this about? What does it mean to have a right relationship with God? What does it mean to grow in grace and in the knowledge of of the truth? And you decide, it's not for me. You know, I went to a church and, and the guy talked and they read from the Bible and he told me about Jesus and he told me about his love and he told me how I was a sinner and how I needed a savior and that how if, if I would believe that Jesus is that savior that I could experience his grace and his mercy and his love and, and he said that I had to walk away from my sin and I had to walk into the arms of God but I wasn't willing to do that. And so part of the point that the writer is making is that the true believer will bear true fruit. 
and the apostate and the make-believer won't bear fruit. The land is barren. The only thing it produces is thorns and briars. The fruit of sin. It receives, but it never produces anything ultimately useful. And you might be thinking, well, can't the unbeliever or the make-believer produce something that's useful? And I think that the answer is yes. Even Muhammad Ali used to say, a crusty old piece of bread could produce some penicillin. Yeah, can, can you make something useful from a crusty old piece of bread? Yeah. But can a life that's lived apart from Christ or lived apart from his love or lived apart from his mercy or lived apart from his grace, can those people who have no life impart life to others? That's the point that he's making. The true believer bears fruit. The make-believer and the apostate are fruitless. What does the apostate, the make-believer, and the barren land all have in common? They're going to be burned. They generate heat. Some people might say, well, what good are thorns and thistles? In the ancient culture, do you know what they would do with thorns and thistles? They would gather them together and they would use them to heat the furnaces. See, when you see just scrub or brush, um, they they wouldn't let anything go to waste. and, And they would say, well, what can we do with this? And they said, we can throw it in the fire. Newell writes, fearful state, fearful outlook. Those simple words. A fruitless life is a life that's going nowhere, that will wind up nowhere. Now, think about what the writer is saying. But beloved, but beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner. What manner are they speaking? In a metaphorical manner. But beloved... Who is this writer warning but beloved? By the way, the word beloved appears some 60 times in the New Testament. It appears one time and one time only in the book of Hebrews. It's right here, right now, in this chapter and in this verse. The word beloved translates a Greek word agapidos. You know the word agape. Agape is that word that means God's love. It's the kind of love that comes from God's heart. And so even though it's translated beloved, it actually has this meaning of those individuals who are loved by God. And so it's translated beloved. We could even translate this Those of you who are greatly loved, my precious, beloved loved ones. And so he says, but beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. We're confident, and by the way, the word confident in the old King James reads this way. We are persuaded better things. And I think the old King James captures the meaning 
in a sense, way better. In what sense? Persuaded means something that you hesitated in the past. You thought about it in the past, but now it's settled in the present. The word means something that you mold over in the past, that you debated, that you debated about in the past. And so the implication seems to be that the writer of Hebrews is saying, I was a little bit concerned about you. I was concerned about you because you're not acting like people who know Jesus and love Jesus and walk with Jesus. I was a little bit concerned because you seem to be a a little too religious. That you seem to be preoccupied with the external instead of the internal. You seemed preoccupied with religious traditions and religious rituals and religion in general. Past hesitation, now settled. Past misgivings and doubts, now with a present confidence. The writer is in effect saying, you know, I had my doubts about you. But no longer. I had my doubts about you. But I don't have those doubts any longer. Why? Yes, things that accompany salvation. I need you to pause for a moment and rest on that expression. Just for a moment. There are things that accompany salvation... And there are things that don't accompany salvation. The things that don't accompany salvation are all the things that he talks about in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6. What doesn't accompany salvation? For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing that they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. In what sense? Imagine a person says, I'm willing to think about Jesus and I'm willing to think about his life and I'm willing to think about his death and I'm willing to think about his identity and I'm willing to think all of these thoughts about Jesus. I'm willing to even go to church. I'm willing to read my Bible. I'm willing to think about my circumstances, but I'm not willing. I'm not willing to believe that he's the savior who can save me. You see, there are things that don't accompany salvation. Doubt, fear, and unbelief, these aren't things that accompany salvation. So what are the things that do accompany salvation? These are the remarkable privileges. Love, faith, personal professions, And so he's going to talk about it. The work and labor of love in verse 10. The full assurance of hope in verse 11. The diligent exercise of faith, verse 12. Love for the saints because we've experienced the love of Jesus. Hope in the present world and future because of Jesus. The exercise of faith, faith in Jesus. So there are certain signs that accompany salvation. Faith, hope, love. By the way, those three things together, does that sound familiar to anyone? 
Isn't there another Bible writer in the New Testament who talks about faith, hope, love? It's found in 1 Corinthians. Almost everybody knows about it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Remember Paul talks about even if he could speak with the tongues of men and of angels and, and had not love, it would be like sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And he goes through this wonderful chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And then he says, for now we see in a mirror when you come to the end of the chapter in verse 12, dimly then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And then he says in verse 13, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. You see, you can fake religion. You can go to a church. You can read your Bible. But do you realize that it's almost impossible on a consistent basis over a long period of time to fake a genuine love for God and a genuine love for each other. And so look what he says in verse 10, the work and the labor of love, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The writer is basically saying to these group of people, the Lord will not forget their work and labor of love. Why? Because does it matter? Does it mean something? And the point is, of course it does. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3. The work and labor of love. And he used, Paul uses the same expression in 1 Thessalonians. The labor of love. And look what the labor of love has been directed toward. His name. Which name do you suppose this is? Do you think he's speaking to the Hebrew people about the name of Jehovah? Probably not. I think he's speaking of the name which is above every name. He's thinking of that precious name. The beautiful name. The name that the angel announced at the birth of our Savior. They'll call his name Jesus. And the ministry has been directed to the saints. Who are these people? You have ministered to the saints. Again, I grew up in a religious tradition where a saint was a person who was really holy. Um, who was identified by the church for the, either their holy living or, or miracles that they performed. But the New Testament knows no such definition. According to the book of Romans, a saint is anyone who has come into a right relationship with God in Christ. And we've already talked about that. So I'm not going to be deeply offended if after the service you call me Saint Gino. A saint is just simply anyone who knows Jesus and loves Jesus. So the ministry has been directed to the saints. Think about it for just a moment. And they continue in that ministry. They love the Lord. They love 
each other. It's directed by service to one another. Now remember what love is. Love isn't just simply a warm feeling in your stomach or affection for someone. Here, I think love means the willingness to do what's right for another person based on what God has said in his word and what Jesus reveals in his ministry. Love is something, not simply that you feel, but it's something that you do. And so what is the evidence of salvation? The evidence of salvation is the work and the labor of love. The evidence of salvation is active love for the people of God and the household of faith, which becomes really problematic for a number of different people. Because uh, have you ever heard someone say, I love God, it's just people, I can't stand them. I would love going to church if there weren't so many people there. People are awkward and troubling and sometimes hard to deal with. But the evidence of salvation is love and service to the saints. This is why the Apostle John, in his little epistle of 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, will write, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So John doesn't give us the option. John doesn't say, can't I just have the option to love God and maybe just tolerate these people? No, that's not an option. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Apparently, there's a way to actually love each other and to care about each other. And apparently it includes honoring them above yourself. That means approaching each and every person with the attitude, God has placed this person in my life. God has placed this person before me. How can I love them? How can I care about them? How can I listen to them? The apostles preached that those who have been born of God, they love Jesus and they love each other. And so a person who simply goes to church or a person who simply reads their Bible or a person who simply engages in religious activities completely detached from a real relationship and fellowship with Jesus and with each other don't seem to fit what this, what this person is writing. Augustine, the church father, wrote, where there is love, there is trinity. A lover, a beloved, and a spring of love. Listen to what Augustine says again. When love is present, there is a trinity. There's a person who initiates the love, there is a person who is loved. And then there's a wellspring of love. 
Isn't that one of the best definitions of you, that you've ever heard of the Holy Trinity? The Father loves the Son. There is a lover and one being loved. And the Holy Spirit is the wellspring. The New Testament says that the Father loves the Son. And the Bible says that the Father that the, that the Son and the Holy Spirit love the Father. This is one of the most powerful arguments that there must be a trinity. And so, we go from this issue of love to this issue of hope. Look what it says in verse 11. And we desire, and we desire that each one of you Show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. The writer encourages the Hebrew Christian to continue in that loving service. In that loving service to the saints. In that loving service to the saints. Right up until the point that they draw their last breath. That they inhale and then they exhale. The writer exhorts, look what it says. Read it for yourself. And we desire that each one of you. Does that exclude anybody? No one. Each one of you show the same diligence. What does that mean? It means an earnest desire. So when he's saying that each one of you show the same diligence earnest desire the true believer wants to communicate that love wants to demonstrate that love you know what this caused me to think about were there some less willing were there some less loving Were there some unwilling to love and to serve? How do you read it? I read it that way because of the very exhortation. There seemed to be some who were more willing, and there seemed to be some who were less willing. There seemed to be some who were unwilling. Unwilling to love? Unwilling to serve? Why does the author insist that each one exercise some effort? Why does he insist that each one show some sign of spiritual life? It goes all the way back to the context. What does this writer want from you and from me? Growth. Spiritual maturity, growth, spiritual maturity. How do you get it? You love and you serve. And in loving and in serving, you demonstrate growth in order to increase assurance and expand certainty. Imagine that you're dealing with a person. Has anyone ever come up to you and said, I don't even know if I'm saved. I don't even know if I have a right relationship with God. 
I don't even know if I am going to heaven. What do you say to them? Do you say, have you prayed this prayer? Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand that he's willing to forgive you? You might say all of those things and all of those things might be true and might be important. But now the writer is inviting you to say something else. Do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Is there a burning desire on your part to love him and to know him and to please him? Is there a burning desire in your heart to love other people and to minister to them and to pray for them and to serve them? Is that what's going on inside of your heart? I'm going to suggest to you that he wants them to obtain the full assurance of their hope. Look what it says in verse 11. And we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. What is hope? Later in the book of Hebrews, we're going to discover that hope is the evidence of things unseen. Hope requires belief. Someone said, expecting something for nothing is the most popular form of hope in our culture. I think that that's true. Hey, what are you hoping for? I'm hoping for something for nothing. Tell me again what it is that you want. I want to be rich. Do you want to work? Oh, no, 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 no. What are you hoping for? I want to have a loving relationship with my husband or my wife. And what are you doing to cultivate that? What are you, what are you hoping for? Well, I'm hoping that I'll just wake up and she'll look beautiful and desirable forever. He'll be attentive and polite And not be an idiot forever. Hey, if that's your expectation, be prepared to be disappointed. Hope requires belief. Vaclav Havel said, Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. You see, hope is different for the Christian. Hope isn't like, I hope something's going to turn out for the good. Hope for the Christian and the full assurance of hope for the Christian is the final test of reality. What is the hope of the Christian? The hope of the Christian is that the promises of Jesus are real. The hope of the Christian is that his instructions are for life. The hope of the Christian is that Jesus has begun a good work in you and will see that work to the end. Hope for the Christian is the full assurance of hope, is the fact that justification, because we love Jesus, will lead to sanctification, which is holy living, which will culminate in glorification that one day, one day, one day, you will die and you will receive an eternal reward 
God's going to raise you from the dead. You're going to be his constant companion. Adoniram Judson used to say, the future is as bright as the promises of God. What is the Christian's hope? Every promise of God is true. So what does the full assurance of hope look like? Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, My only hope is that I shall be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is a man who knew a whole lot about Jesus and a whole lot about the Bible. His hope? My hope is that I will be accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus has done. So in order to come to Christ, the sinner must despair. The sinner has to lose all hope of self-righteousness. Lose all confidence in yourself. Dostoevsky wrote, hell is hopelessness. It's no accident that above the entrance of Dante's hell is the inscription, leave behind all hope for all who enter here. Hope, Christ. Hopeless, no Christ. But we have hope. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was Peter's way of saying, we don't have a dead hope. We don't have a philosophical hope. We don't have a hope that is engraved on a papyri reed or on a, on a manuscript our hope is based on a real person who's really alive. And so later in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he'll talk about hope to the end. What is it that we hope? Jesus is true. That what he says is true and what he does is true. And then the diligent exercise of faith. Look at verse 12. That you do not become sluggish. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The charge includes one more warning. Look what it says. That you do not become sluggish. Sluggish is a word that we don't really use in our culture anymore. Sluggish means slothful. Oh, yeah, there's another word we don't use in our culture anymore. It means lazy. We still use that word. Most people understand what the word lazy means. But this word in its original meaning, and I think in its context, meant to drag one's feet. Have you ever said, pick up your feet, you're dragging your feet. This is that word. Stop dragging your feet, pick up your feet. 
What, have you ever seen a person who didn't want to go in a particular place? Have you ever had a child and then all of a sudden you're trying to make the child go in the direction that you want the child to go and he just drops like a sack of potato and starts dragging his feet and the only way that you're going to get him from point A to point B is you have to drag him along. And so the author is saying, stop dragging your feet. Why does he even say that? Because some were dragging their feet. So I need to ask you a question. Is it possible that an unsaved person could read this passage? I think that the answer is yes. Again, what is the very definition of an unsaved person? This is a person who is dragging his or her feet when it comes to knowing, loving, believing, and receiving Christ. So is it possible that a person who doesn't know, doesn't believe, never experienced grace, mercy, and forgiveness, they're dragging their feet when it comes to belief? Yeah. Is it possible that he's also talking about a Christian who's dragging his feet or her feet because they're not willing to love and to serve or to exercise hope. I think it is possible. I think it's possible that someone could read this passage and they're not completely convinced that they love God the way that they should love God or that they love the brethren the way that they should love the brethren. But I need you to understand just one more thing. If there's no evidence of love in their life and if there's no evidence of hope in their life, you're certainly not going to see any evidence of faith in their life. So what of the professing Christian? What of the so-called Christian? What if the Christian shows no sign of spiritual life, spiritual activity? I think the writer of Hebrews is saying, you're in danger. You're in danger. What of the unbeliever who ignores or neglects so great of salvation? What about the make-believer or the carnal Christian or the immature Christian? Content to live their life in perpetual infancy. What of the person who's willing to live their lives, but they have no intention whatsoever to exercise love? They have no plan whatsoever to serve the saints. They have no plan whatsoever to believe in hope or exercise faith. I got to tell you something. If your love is growing cold and if your hope seems cold and distant, and if your faith seems far away and you feel like you're dragging your feet, then it's time to pick up your steps. You 
lost that spring in your step? Do you remember the first time when you realized that God loves you and that he's willing to forgive you and that you don't have to go to hell and that you get to go to heaven and your life went soaring into the stratosphere? You couldn't wait to tell someone about your love for God. You couldn't wait to open up your Bible. You couldn't wait to get to church. What are the joys and what are the dangers? The dangers are you grow weary in well-doing. Your love burns hot and then it grows cold. You serve, but then you don't serve joyfully. And then you serve routinely. And then you don't serve at all. But the writer is encouraging you to go forward. To press forward. To ask and answer the question, how can I make my love for God and my service to the saints more real? And then the writer encourages the reader by saying, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Think about what he's saying. I don't know what to do. And the writer says, Do what the saints did in the olden days. Do what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. And by the way, that's exactly what he's going to illustrate in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. He's going to begin a discussion of Abraham. And later, when you read through the book of Hebrews, you're going to eventually come to Hebrews chapter 11. And there, in Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to see a litany. He's going to talk about the saints. He's going to talk about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. He's going to talk about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He's going to talk about the parents of Moses. He's going to talk about Joshua and Israel. He's going to talk about Rahab. And why is he going to talk about all of these people? Because he's going to talk about how all of these people did what he's asking you to do. Live a life of love. Live a life of faith. Live a life of hope. Let's talk just for a moment about that faith and that patience that causes us to inherit the promises Remember, he's not talking about any kind of faith, but imitate those who through faith. What kind of faith is he talking about? Do you think he's talking about Catholic faith? Do you think he's talking about Protestant faith? Do you think he's talking about Islam or Judaism? He's not talking about any of those kinds of things. The faith that he's talking about is the kind of belief that what God says is true. Let me be as simple as I possibly can. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the faith that he's talking about, he's talking about the the kind of faith that says, I'm willing to believe what God says is true. That's fairly simple, don't you think? I'm willing to believe that what God says is true. Faith is the assurance that the thing that God has said in his word is true. And what has God said in his word? 
Jesus said, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus said, come to me. Jesus says, believe in me. Jesus says, trust me. Jesus says, walk with me. Faith is the assurance that the thing that God says in his word is true and that God will act according to what he has said in his word. And see, this becomes important because if faith is believing that what God says is true, and if faith is in fact the assurance that what he says is true and it will come to pass, then you are left with this problem. And the problem, of course, is, well, God, you said this is true, so how come it's not true in my life? How come it's true? How come it's not true right now? How come I'm not married right now? How come I'm not rich right now? How come I'm not in heaven right now? What am I still doing here? Well, God's made some promises to you. And your whole life is going to be a life of trying to figure out what those promises are. What God wants you to do today. And tomorrow and the next day. Someone once said. Faith sees the invisible. Believes the incredible. Receives the impossible. Faith is the gateway of communion with God. And love is the gateway of ministry to men. And this is why the Bible places such an important emphasis. Not just simply on what you think about God or what you believe about God. But how you really feel about him. And then how you really feel about each other. He's going to give the illustration of Abraham, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But do you remember what God promised to Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Not going to happen. I'm north of 90 years old. Sarah, even though she's the hottest girl in the whole wide world. So much so that Egyptian kings would love to have her. She's still a little past 70. I think that those days are over. And God says, no, you're going to have a son. And by the way, did God's promise come true? But then God asked Abraham to offer his son. Faith made it possible to offer that son. Remember, God made a promise and said, the whole world's going to be blessed through your son. And then God said, I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham agrees to do it. Because he believes that somehow, some way, in some way, God has to bring his son back to life in order to fulfill his promises. And that's exactly what God does with Jesus. 
He'll bring his son back to life to fulfill his promises. And so you think about that laundry list of people. Abraham. Daniel. The king made a decree that no one could pray to any god or deity or authority. Except to him. And Daniel continues to do what Daniel always did. He kneeled down and he faced west towards Jerusalem and he prayed to God and he was thrown into a lion's den and under normal circumstances he should have been eaten but by faith the Bible says God closed their mouths Stephen testified to his Jewish brothers that Jesus was the Lord and by faith while they stoned him Stephen looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing, waiting to receive him. What do all of those things have in common? It took faith and patience and it cost them. They didn't drag their feet. Faith believes the word of God for what it cannot see. And then it rewards by seeing what is believed. No wonder Paul said in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith makes things possible. Love makes things easy. How hard is it for you to love your grandchildren? No problem. I can do that in my sleep. Why? Because you've made the decision. Why do you love your children? It's in order for one day so that you can have grandchildren. That's the only reason you don't kill your children. So we repeat Dr. McGee's famous statement. I believe in the assurance of the believer... And I believe in the non-assurance of the make-believer. Evidence of salvation? Love for God. And love for Christians. And service to them. Evidence for salvation? Hope in the things that God has said in Christ. Evidence of salvation? Faith. The kind of faith that sees the invisible, believes the impossible, receives the promises of God in Christ. Dwight Moody said, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven, but a lot of faith will bring heaven your soul why did he say that because he knew that sometimes you need a glimpse into the future of where you're going because you know them and you love them we're going to have communion what I'd like you to do is to hold the elements until we all have an opportunity 
to partake together. And so I'm going to have the guys come forward. I'm going to have uh, Sam and Lauren come back out. And um, let's pray and prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want so much to know you and to love you. Lord, we pray that if we've been dragging our feet in the area of love, in the area of service, in the area of hope, in the area of faith, Lord, we pray that you would renew within us a right spirit. And like David prayed, to look deep into our hearts, to see our broken and our sinful condition, to forgive us so that we can experience grace and mercy and love Because love is in our hearts, we are able to impart it to others. Because hope is in our heart, we're able to impart it to others. And because faith is in our heart, we're able to share it with others. And so again, Lord, we pray, we pray that in the most simple way possible, that Lord, you would examine us, that you would look at our hearts, that you would identify those areas that are that need work, that need help. Lord, those areas of giftedness that we've neglected, those areas of service that we've let slip by, those areas of opportunity that we could have done exactly what you wanted and we neglected to do so. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be motivated not by guilt, or remorse, or even regret, but that, Lord, we would be motivated by a heart filled with love, motivated by a a heart full of hope, by a heart, Lord, filled with faith. In Jesus' name.